Welcome to the uh, Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma's Career Cast. Uh, I'm Zaf Kassim from the University of Pennsylvania, and today we're going to be focusing on careers of emergency physicians who have subspecialized in surgical critical care. And I've got the pleasure of having with us today uh, Dr. Tiffany Osborne, who is Professor of Surgery and Emergency Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, Dr. Osborne obtained her medical degree from UT San Antonio and completed her EM residency from University of Maryland. And we also have Dr. Zach Ginsberg, who is working in a private practice setting as medical director of the SICU at Kettering Medical Center in Cincinnati. Dr. Ginsberg attended uh, Brown University for medical school and completed an EM residency through North Shore University Hospital. And both doctors Osborne and Ginsburg completed their surgical critical care fellowships at the R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. So welcome to you both, and thank you for joining us in the East CareerCast. Um, both of you are part of a, a small but growing number of EM-trained uh, SCC specialists, and uh, so it'd be great to kind of hear a little bit about um, how your careers are and. Uh, certain topics around that, but why don't we start off um, by having you both describe your path to fellowship as well as your current roles. Um, Dr. Osborne, do you want to start off? Um, so when you say path to fellowship, are you saying why I decided to, to do it and then yeah. which path yeah. I took? Okay. Yeah. So um, I think in order to understand why I thought about doing critical care, you have to sort of think about what, you know, we put it in context with what the landscape looked like at that time. So I began evaluating doing a critical care fellowship in 1999. Um, so now put that into the context of the first time, you know, they really counted how many of us had done this combined emergency medicine critical care pathway was when uh, Julie um, had had published this in, what, 2007, 2006, and I think there were 70 of us. So I began looking at it in 1999, and so why, why would I do that at that period? Um, you have to think about the fact that in the 1990s, especially the mid-1990s, there was an increased number of hospital closures. So the number of EDs nationally that uh, closed was around 10%, and there, the number of hospital closures represented something like over 200,000 beds at the time. And this resulted in a number of ED visits increasing, and, and um, it's been documented around 25% of the volume of emergency departments increased. and the critical care volume increased significantly beyond that. And when we're looking at this from the standpoint of trauma, um, in 2002-ish, I can't remember the exact date, but there was a survey where they looked at the number of trauma centers, level one trauma centers, and around 90% of level one trauma centers at that period of time were operating at or above capacity. So when I, how that translated to me was that I was seeing what a lot of emergency physicians were seeing, and that was not only was I seeing more patients every day, they were sicker than ever before, and they were staying longer than ever before. And this sort of culminated for me when I was a senior, um, you know, chief resident, and I found that, you know, it culminated basically into one patient, which was this person who was critically ill, was on the ventilator, was having to get dialysis, was on vasopressors, 
And that person stayed in the emergency department for three days. And the inpatient service where I was was not required to round on these patients or provide care to these patients until they actually got to wherever they were supposed to go. And I realized at that time that, you know, I could put an endotracheal tube in, but I wasn't really comfortable with taking it out. And I didn't see any more resources being provided uh, to this situation, and it had the potential to continue to increase. And I realized at that point that I probably needed to do a critical care fellowship. So that, and, and the intention then was just that I was going to try to provide better care to the patients that I was taking care of and potentially reduce their need for intensive care services so that they could then be admitted to the hospital if there wasn't room in the ICU. And uh, I decided to do surgical critical care um, because Wade Gash, uh, who was an emergency physician, had done that previously. Um, in fact, I think he was, I'm not sure if he was the first or not, but uh, he was the one of the few that I knew of that had already done it. And he did it at shock trauma. And I had a very good reputation from having rotated at shock trauma. And so I went to Dr. Scalia and said, you know, I'd like to do this. And um, Dr. Scalia, being Dr. Scalia, put his hands behind his head, put his feet up on the desk, took a deep breath and said, Tiffany, why would you want to do a crazy, ridiculous thing like this? And I said, well, I kept thinking if I laid down and put a cold rag on my head, the feeling would go away. <laughs> but it didn't. And that's what started it for me. Fantastic. That's uh, uh a great uh, story to your path. What about you, Zach? What was, uh, do you have a similar path, or uh, do you have different uh, thoughts of pursuing uh, fellowship? Well, it's actually it's a, it's interesting to hear Tiffany's story because it resonates with me as well. Um, you know, I jokingly will tell people I reluctantly came to critical care because I ultimately couldn't pass up um, or, you know, stop acknowledging that that's where I wanted to be. And it starts actually as a sub-I, um, as a medical student um, that I did it in um, the intensive care unit and just really found the bandwidth of problems so compelling that at the time, I had really been interested in going into emergency medicine, but genuinely sat down and started trying to complete a application for uh, EMIM programs and um, really got hung up on the internal medicine um, personal essay where, you know, I could not genuinely write that I really wanted to do internal medicine and finally just gave it up being like, you know, I kind of think I want critical care, but I don't want it badly enough to have to learn to do floor medicine. So I'm going to become an emergency doc and be happy with that and didn't apply to the EMIM programs. And then it became, as I was going through residency, I consistently was um, every critical care or high acuity pod shift I was working with, each of those patients I just found to be um, such a sense of satisfaction in the level of help that I had provided. And I had some good mentorship along the way of EM uh, critical care trained faculty who I would look at and, you know, tongue in cheek, I would say they practiced really sexy medicine where it was the way they used their vasopressors and inotropes, I kept on um, being a nerd gravitating intellectually to, I want that level of sophistication. Right now, I feel like I'm not able to do that. And even as a senior emergency resident, I was approaching graduation nervously with 
um, out a full sense that I had seen enough acuity and I was worried that I would flinch in the emergency department when the proverbial train wreck came in. And I had the benefit in my residency program that we did our trauma month down at Shock Trauma. And so had been a resident um, on the A team uh, or team A with um, some of the fellowship directors, Dr. Chu, and um, had expressed interest. Um, well, initially, actually, I had kind of tried not to, but my wife gave me feedback that she said, you've never, ever worked this hard and yet been so happy. And she's like, you should just really give that some thought because we had been considering as we were a commuting couple um, the cost trade-off of one or two more years to um, continue to be commuting and not living together, was it worth it? And after I sat down with, um, you know, all of the respective players at Shock Trauma expressing interest, they said, well, submit an application, you know, so that we can interview you, let us know how it's going. And right at this time was when um, the various um, medicine boards were considering the petition from emergency medicine to let us formally sit for the boards. So uh, I ended up applying for the one-year fellowship. I remember sitting down with Dr. Scalia, talking with him, and he said, well, you know, um, it's likely that we're going to be, um, you know, getting approved by the American College of Surgery. So, um, you know, are you okay with well, it was not a question, are you okay with doing a two-year fellowship? It's, if you're coming, you'll do the two-year fellowship, to which I said, I'm happy <laughs> to do that. That sounds more like Scalia. Yeah. yeah. That sounds more like yeah, Dr. Scalia. Just to keep representation accurate here. And um, <laughs> then, basically, 10 days after the interview, I got the call saying, you know, we'd like to offer you the spot. And I never really looked back. And it really just comes from a matter of wanting that um, uh, facility that I had had modeled for me, the um, reluctant acknowledgement that I loved working with really sick people in the emergency department. And kind of as Tiffany said, you know, however many cold, wet rags I put on my forehead, I could not shake the, the, the desire to be in that situation um, with the critically ill patient. And I felt like I needed that surgical critical care to be able to be um, at my best whether it was in the ICU or in the emergency department. And I did also um, reach out to Pittsburgh. My wife made one rule. Um, she said, if you're going to live apart from me for two years, you can only apply to the best medicine and the best surgical critical care program. She was like, Cause it's not the way we worded it was, it's not worth the two years if you're not at the best. That's just our own personal decision. Um, and shock trauma just said yes. And so, you know, to Pittsburgh, I withdrew my application just saying, you know, a bird in the hand. And they said, absolutely, you're going to have a wonderful time. And, um, you know, we can talk about the merits of surgical critical care versus um, I am critical care for the EM doc out there. I do counsel my residents on this, um, but I am biased. I do think that surgical critical care gives you a um, additional facility with the procedures that um, in the high kind of trauma, high acuity traumatic setting that is um, not necessarily garnered from the other programs. But that's really how I ended up kind of coming into critical care myself. That's really interesting because I, uh, you know, between the both of you, I kind of see my own path to uh, uh, how I ended up doing SCC as well. But I think it, it's a great segue to um, kind of what the SCC pathway right now is for emergency physicians. Um, I think when Tiffany and I went through the fellowship at Shock Trauma, it was still the one year 
Um, and I think we both did the European diploma to get our board certification, and now that's transitioned to um, uh, pretty much all pathways doing uh, allowing emergency physicians to sit their own boards. Um, so, you know, they, uh, I was talking to someone the other day who was asking about uh, SCC, and they got hung up on this. Um, preliminary surgical year, and uh, Zach, you've been through that, uh, and uh, sure, Tiffany, I'm sure you have some thoughts on it. But what do you guys think about that? You know, that extra year where you might be um, uh, working on a more kind of junior level than uh, what you'd expect to be at faculty uh, at the fellowship level. Um, does that detract from people going into surgical critical care when there are now other options to do it, or uh, should it be embraced? What do you guys think? I guess I'll take this first since I, yeah. <laughs> since I did the year. I think it's an asset, um, and I don't equivocate on that. I really think that um, the junior role you're describing first off is you're treated more, and I think each program will do this differently, but at least in my experience, and we were the first year to do this, so we were troubleshooting this and we're protective that the fellow should not be scudded out, um, which I don't think any program should ever allow. But the exposure to the operating room isn't something that the emergency physician really has in their residency training. And I think it's important when you're speaking with your surgeons that you have that cognitive understanding of why we're making certain decisions intraoperatively because it has impact on the postoperative recovery as well as, you know, having that experience on the surgical teams to be able to really key into what is it that we're worried about, what is it that should prompt you to return back to the operating room. And, you know, by and large, the requirements are six months in the OR, and it flies by. And, you know, you get to participate in a way that I think is an appropriate bandwidth. I wouldn't want to be the surgical resident because I'm not a surgeon. But I am grateful that I was basically treated like, you know, PGY 3 and 4, where, you know, I've gotten to have experiences that emergency physicians haven't. I can comfortably do a sternotomy. I've gotten to, you know, do large portions of the X-lap. I've gotten to sew on arterial vessels during amputations in trauma and also elective amputations that has increased and improved my skills clinically at the bedside when I'm uh, in the emergency department and also my ability to work well collaboratively with my surgical colleagues because frequently they're caught, they're kind of taken aback when they're just talking to me as a generic ICU physician until I clarify that I'm surgical critical care because they're like, how do you know what a medial visceral rotation is or other components like this where, you know, it's a ease of communication, and I think that that only helps as an asset to the patient and also your overall practice pattern. And I think that the exposure is great because you really are able to understand a lot more as far as what constitutes a true surgical emergency, what the preoperative and postoperative care should be, so that you really are continuing in your role, even if you're a non-operative provider, to be able to expedite help and improve outcomes for your patients because that awareness, like I said at the beginning, is an asset. And I think the actual experience depends on the program, but by and large, I never felt like I was scudded. I felt very, very protected. The surgeons we have the benefit of shock trauma were wonderful to work with, took me under their wing as true mentors to be able to allow me to be vulnerable, saying I'm not a surgeon, I don't understand why we're doing this. So they would just kind of um, raise that level of understanding such that I watch myself peer-to-peer -peer in the emergency department 
and it's a vast gap when I look at what the emergency residency training leaves you in terms of understanding surgery. It's just can call surgery, will send to OR without the understanding of what we're really trying to do, what we can do to optimize the patient preoperatively. And in the end, when you're receiving that patient in the ICU, you know, I work in a mixed center where I do have um, medical intensivists, and I just have had to gently bend the ear on some of the more surgically oriented management that comes from an intraoperative and postoperative understanding that I think you only get from that exposure of being in the operating room. Plus, you get to see cool things like PISTO procedure and things like that. Great. Uh, Tiffany, did you have any thoughts on how this has transitioned now? So um, I actually I did it two years in my fellowship, um, not not just one. And the reason for that is even though it was in 2000, I was pretty clear that if and when we were going to have the opportunity to sit for U.S. boards, which, you know, as you know, was not an opportunity at that point in time. And, and Zaf, both you and I did do the European boards because of that, which was, um, you know, written as well as oral. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that it was going to require two years for me to be able to sit for the boards if and when that was an option. So I did two years at shock trauma before I left. Um, regarding the, you know, the, the extra year, I think that it really depends on the institution and how well they have that year scripted out. I can see where it could be very beneficial, and I can see where it could be um, not. And it's not really well described uh, in the guidelines. It's pretty much up to the various institutions and how that is set up. And it does not surprise me at all that shock trauma was very clear on what they felt that year was going to be and how they were going to use that to create better um, intensivists. Um, but I don't, you know, the, the places where you're interviewing, I think you just have to be clear about what that is and what it entails. And a number of people um, are currently, you know, like emergency physicians who are interested in critical care are going the pathway through anesthesia. So they mm-hmm. get more surgical critical care experience um, without having to risk the unknown of what that year entails. Yeah, for sure. Um, So I think that uh, brings us nicely into a a couple topics that we touched on. We were were pretty lucky to have, um, you know, some strong leadership and and guidance during our fellowships in Baltimore. Um, But with EM uh, surgical critical care being such a, a younger specialty or subspecialty, uh, what do you guys feel about uh, finding mentors and, that will be able to guide us through completing fellowship and moving on to the next phase of getting a, a job um, being done? And how, how have you guys found that uh, in this field? Jack, do you want to start? Um, well, so in terms of mentorship uh, for getting a job, um, the or starting with going through fellowship, I feel like you know we were the first class, and it was everyone was very um hands on in terms of being able to make sure that we had an open door policy 
um, for any questions, any concerns, and um, things would be able to be changed potentially in the moment, depending on um, how a given rotation was um, going, whether we thought it was too long or things like that, um, or if we wanted to add in other components of the experience. And so I thought that the mentorship through the training was very sound in terms of um, from a pedagogical approach of what are we trying to produce at the end, which was a well-rounded, competent kind of uh, intensivist who was able to effectively be a well-skilled, non-operative intensivist able to handle any of the bandwidth of, you know, pre- and post-operative problems that may come in um, with some facility in the operating room. And I felt very, very um, well-mentored throughout. The we We'll kind of cross this when it comes to the job discussion as to what my own individual experience was. But it was, um, again, just an open-door policy of the faculty who had mentored me in residency as well as in fellowship to be able to reach out through the various networks to put me in touch with folks for jobs. And um, by and large, I was counseled on things to avoid um, and things to consider. We were a new batch, um, and so partly the challenge with mentorship is that there aren't as many um, EM surgical critical care folks out there to be able to model yourself off of. So I actually have kind of found my home largely in SCCM within kind of the emergency medicine section is where I feel like I have the most um, ability to kind of turn to what have been other people's experiences. And I've settled out rather nicely where I am, but it's really been a matter of we've been figuring it out on the go because there haven't been as many, um, in terms of my exposure, folks who have been able to um, speak to how to get two departments to play nicely. Um, so it's really been a matter of, you know, as you come up with each problem, having utilized your professional networks to be able to fall back on, here's what I'm dealing with now. And I think each individual's experience has been very, very different is in the end what I've found, that people have kind of had certain common threads, but the challenges themselves have been more nuanced depending on the institution you're looking to apply to, the personalities involved. And by and large, I think as you're going through fellowship and residency, you really want to make sure to maintain um, that mentorship so that you have a friend outside of the job market that you're trying to fly into who you can either just kind of um, get guidance from, vent to, or frankly just, you know, collapse being like, this is just all going sideways, what do I do now? And I think that that's really the biggest asset because we are kind of evolving and figuring this out. And I would say that not just as a field, but also the institutions we're applying to are somewhat trying to recognize what is this new entity of this hybridization. Um, and my administration at my hospital has been very, very supportive where they're like, we actually love the emergency base with the critical care training. We think it's a huge asset for the network as a whole. We want more of them and there aren't that many. So I happen to have found a very allied environment, but also encountered a number of places that were very hostile. And the reality is that, you know, there's mentorship is helpful, but when mentorship is kind of, you just have to persevere through it because the market is, still trying to become ready for us, um, 
it makes the overall job op the topography of the job opportunities um there are a lot of peaks and valleys that you just have to navigate and so you need friends um and unfortunately those friends will have been ones that have created the system that we have in the sense of EM and um, surgical critical care, but will not necessarily have applied out in that role where, you know, that was the challenge I had is we were embarking on a new horizon and a new frontier where cobbling together the job came down to good negotiation skills, good mentorship, and kind of a lot of flexibility. And I think that the asset of mentorship was understanding that, you know, there were certain things that you could give on and certain things that really you wanted to make sure to preserve for your own sense of job satisfaction and respecting the training that you had. And so it was more kind of support and networking that I um, relied on my mentorship for um, than necessarily, unfortunately, the experience of what it is to apply as a hybrid um, EM critical care physician is the honest uh, truth of my experience. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, Tiffany, what do you think about kind of mentorship? And uh, as we'll, we'll also transition into moving on to the uh, job application process, uh, kind of almost go hand in hand in some ways. Sure. So um, I, I actually I wrote an article about mentorship that could be related to this that I can I can send to you just as a as a link. But um, when you think about Mentorship, or you're thinking about um, um, working with people to figure out what job opportunities are out there, and 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 somebody putting their time into helping to develop you, and also helping you to gauge what's going to work best for your professional goals. You have to think about two things, and one of those is. Um, they're, they're assigning their name to you. You're representing that person. If they put, if they call somebody on your behalf, you are representing their um, ability to um, to show them a good person. So, so there's a responsibility associated with that. People want to know number one that you are good at what you do, that you are invested in what you do and that they can work with you. So um, that constitutes a significant part of your reputation. And this is one of the things I don't think we think about when we're residents or fellows or even junior attendings is that your reputation is very important and, and it follows you. So if you're expecting that someone is going to help you find a job and to um, put their name on what you do when you're at this new place, you need to have developed a reputation while you're working with them or under them that you are, A, good at what you do, you're invested in what you do, and people will want to work with you. Um, so your your reputation is important, and um, it's 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 how you show up every day. A lot of times we think that this is how we respond to some big event, 
And yes, that plays a component, but your ability to respond to some big event is really based on what you do day in, day out. How do you show up to your job? Um, when I was first applying for jobs, uh, people didn't know what I was. I remember, remember this is in 2002. I mean, we talked about in 2007 there were like 70 of us. So you can think about in 2002 there were it was very few. Um, people would call me up not to offer me a job, but to figure out what I was. You know, so it was like I I can't offer you a job. There's no way the surgeons here would um, would go for this you know, emergency medicine in the ICU, but your CV is so amazing. I, 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 I just needed to call and, you know, kind of figure out exactly what this is, you know, what, what, what you're doing, what, how this came about. So these were the kind of conversations that I had. My ability to get a job was based on someone reaching out for me uh, to places where they knew they needed help. And my ability to keep the job was based on, how I conducted myself while I was there. So I always advise the first six months to one year to when, when fellows are leaving to start a new job, do not focus on research, do not focus on admin, do not focus on anything else. Focus on being at the bedside, providing excellent patient care. People need to see that they can depend on you and that they can trust you both on a clinical level, a personal level, as well as a professional level. And what I found, um, you know, going into UVA initially, which, um, you know, number one, there were not a lot of women working there. Number two, I looked very young. And number three, I came from a non-traditional background, and the majority of people um, had matriculated through UVA. Right, so I was an outsider. Mm -hmm. um, it, it can kind of—I'll tell you that when I first got in, and I, the day before I was working in the unit, that night before I was working in the emergency department, and the uh, surgical um, chief resident was down there, and we, you know, had some words back and forth about a particular trauma patient. The next day, I was in the ICU. And I was looking at the patient, and he's like, why are you here? And, you know, I said, well, I'm here because I, I work here. And he said, no, why are you in the ICU? And I said, well, I work in the ICU. And uh, he, he said, are you an intensivist? And I said, yes, I'm an intensivist. He said, but you work in the emergency department. And I said, yes, I know. And I work in the ICU. And everything is going to be fine. You know, we're going to work together, and it's going to be fine. <laughs> And um, he's like, well, you don't really need to follow the trauma patients. We already have a trauma attending. And I'm like, yes, and I am one of them. And, um, you know, so the point was that it, it, it was a completely different way of operating. And at the end of the first week, um, the guy came back to me, and he gave me a coffee card because I had helped him get out of some particular situations that um, just required somebody being there and having the expertise and um, and and working collaboratively, you know. So the point is, is that you create your reputation by how you show up on a daily basis, 
that's not given to you. That's something that you earn. So um, one of the, that's one of the big things that I think that people don't think about when they're first starting off, regardless of whether you're emergency medicine, surgery, or whatever, is that um, your, your reputation is very important. Your professionalism is very important. And that doesn't just start when you have some big position. It starts, um, it starts from the very beginning. And that follows you. Whenever I was coming back from uh, the U.K., so I lived in the U.K. for five years, and when I was coming back and um, evaluating my options, I was asked to come and look at this position at Washington University. And when I came out here, um, I thought, wow, this is not what I expected. This seems this seems really good. And... Um, the chief of general surgery took me to dinner and he said, okay, look, what do we need to do to get you here? And I thought, wow, um, that's amazing. I mean, you know, a lot of times you, you get this sort of back and forth cat and mouse. Um, you know, I, I couldn't believe that he actually came out and said, you know, what do we need to do to get you here? We want you to work with us. And I didn't find out until recently, so I've been here since 2011, and I didn't find out until recently that he had called up friends of his at UVA that I worked with in the Department of Surgery to find out about me before I interviewed there. And it was based on the reputation that I had established with those colleagues of being not only good at what I did, but collaborative, that... Um, made him want me to work with them here to that extent. Wow. That's fantastic. I think you guys both touched on, on uh, really kind of several great points that, you know, AA or fellowship training really kind of uh, pushes us and uh, makes us uh, well-trained uh, intensivists for the workforce. There is certainly a, a problem of perception amongst uh non-EMSCC folk about what we are and how we do it, but certainly by, uh, you know, once we get through the door um, showing what we can do, that's really valued and appreciated by our respective um, uh, places that we end up working. So those are all uh, fantastic stories that kind of highlight those key points. Um, so coming out of fellowship, you know, some people decide to work uh, primarily in uh, critical care. Some do a split. Uh, there's some challenges with different hospitals uh, in how to do that. Um, Tiffany, you work at primarily an academic site. Zach, you're at a more private practice setting. And um, sometimes there's challenges about how to contract um, a uh, person working in the ED as well as the unit. Um, did you find any particular challenges with that or how do you split your hours and how do you make that work in terms of um, the logistics of them being able to hire you? Tiffany, do you want to go first? Oh, you can. It's fine. Um, so in terms of when you're approaching, so the blend between the two, um, you know, mine is two private practice groups. Um, we kind of jokingly refer to ourselves as private academia because we do get to teach residents, but we don't have the research requirements. Um, the 
the important thing is first, I think, when you're looking at a job to be able to get two departments that are willing to play nicely together, which is the first problem that I had because I had to look within um, a confined geography just due to other life factors. And it really came down to each of the institutions I was looking at. Um, the one department would be overwhelmingly positive and the other department would struggle with, I, we don't understand how to reconcile this and we don't want to work with the other department to figure it out. Um, so I would counsel anyone in terms of when they're um, looking at how to achieve this balance, that you need, making sure that the two departments really are willing to collaborate. Otherwise, you're putting yourself in a position of either perpetual frustration or potentially just to fail um, with getting something that'll work. And the way we arrange it is simply uh, um, with the contracts that we did was a um, negotiation of where the various balance of time would go in terms of who would have um, a certain amount of time um, in each month. And there are many different ways to arrange your schedule. Most of the time, for me, it came down to both groups wanted me there on a monthly basis um, with a you know strong presence. And we just simply um, coordinated that we block off the time for each of them to be able to schedule within the month. And so I do, you know, um, two weeks, um, about uh, about one to two weeks a month of critical care, and then in the vicinity of 40 to 60 hours of emergency medicine um, in the remaining time uh, with kind of each month. And the... I think important thing to just keep in mind is one that you're not burning yourself out um, with whatever will be negotiated because both groups will earn, earnestly were like, we're very interested in having you part time, but you know, certain amusing components will certainly come up. Holidays and weekends will be strongly negotiated. So they said, we're happy to have you part time. And each group said, but we just expect you to work half the holidays to which I pointed out to them. That's a hundred percent of them. Um, so it's just, Early on, I would say getting the balance of your time is important and um, having harder conversations up front is also key to make sure that you're set up for a sustainable um, position that in the end works for everyone. And that's where there's a give and take. Each group needs to recognize that um, the way my system views it is as an emergency critical care provider, I am an asset to the system. They also wanted to improve the relationship as a liaison between the critical care and emergency department in terms of having the ability to have a more informed dialogue of why are we having certain problems pop up, who can we turn to to be our ambassador on either side. And that's certainly an asset that I think we bring that they felt was lacking. And that was really um, a well-received position to kind of um, – just walk into to be able to kind of help um, continue to improve the relationships and therefore the patient handoffs, throughput, and um, overall um, outcomes and well-being. The – yeah, and I, I just – in terms of the balance, um, you know, we are a private group, um, which means we do have partnership tracks. It's important to get that established up front as well, um, whether or not you're on a partnership track if that's something that you want to pursue. And on the whole, the balance between the two, um, you know, the ability for those departments to play nicely means like when my contracts came back up, 
Um, we felt like I was working too much um, in both sides, so we've ramped down to be able to put me more into an oversight administrative position. And I think that as you're plotting along, um, you want to be having a short-term plan. I agree with Tiffany. When you show up, just build that credibility because people won't know who you are um, between the two departments. And frankly, it took people a while to realize that there weren't two Ginsburgs in the hospital and that it was one who was working in both sites. And that personal relationship being that asset is something that um, is, I think, important whether you're in academic or a private setting. And then also just identifying opportunities for improvement um, within the system as a whole is one area that I think in the private arena, um, working between two departments, because there aren't a lot of people that do that, you're going to be able to quickly, if you're interested in it, um, kind of bend the year of the administration. And um, I think a lot of the centers are looking at kind of how do we improve the highest acuity um, patient care. And I think that we're a natural fit for that because certainly um, I think a lot of private centers are looking at how do we just address we there isn't a master architect to kind of pull a Tolgawande's concept there of the ways in which we're able to move from the ED to the ICU and some of these um, community or um, private centers, whichever what tier you might be working in aren't as academically driven. And so they need that person who has the experience of both sides to understand where those pitfalls are. And I think that that's just a natural fit as an emergency provider with a background. We look a lot at systems. And so that's been something in the private arena as well that I think um, has helped out. And so in terms of progressing, I think it's important not to bite off more than you can chew, get the balance of your hours clear, Make sure your departments will really play nicely together and understand that everyone wants more of your time, but it's about creating a balance that will help both departments with a mutual synergy and potentially the system. I work in a seven-hospital network, so having that um, macro lens as well and being able to talk about how we are transferring our critical care patients through the ED or through the ICUs and having one person able to see the whole macro picture, I think is an asset that we don't necessarily speak a lot about, but we certainly are a field that we are the ones that handle a lot of this in a way that I think when you're siloed in one particular department, you may not necessarily see the transitions and where the sickest patients may have lapses or gaps in their care or handoffs or delays that you can kind of... Um, Pull that thread um, because you are eventually, if you've done it right, respected in both departments to be able to ask the harder questions and say, how can we do this better? And it's not necessarily a research-focused lens, but for those who are ultimately not sure about academic versus private, there's certainly the ability to get that satisfaction if you are, you know, an operations management or a quality geek or in any way interested in anything administrative. The blend as well, especially in the private setting, will naturally, I think, move you further and further along um, that progression to be able to be a person who's in those committees, who's holding those positions, who's ultimately giving the counsel and insight because your dialogues are between friends. Every department just is like, I've known, I know you, I trust you, you've bailed me out of situations. And I think that that's an important thing when looking at the job market is finding that goodness of fit between departments 
within the system that you're going to work in to make sure that it's a role that you feel like you can progress and advance, even if it's not the true geeky, nerdy joy of academics. It is an alternate kind of lens that I think, given how many quality problems we have across all systems, and we can all think about it as we're listening to this, that we all can identify a moment where we say someone could have tackled that problem and done that better. And I think being between those two departments and building that relationship is really something that in the private center, I think that you want to be looking towards how can I offer more value with the fact that I can create that synergy between two things that should be coupled, may be coupled, but could be doing it better, or in some cases aren't at all. And I think the only caveat I would give people who are looking at the job market is if the two departments don't play nicely, like I had one job offer that was no time in critical care because they just were overscheduled, but they were willing to pay for half of my time. And they said, look, we don't like our trauma liaison down in the ED. The administration doesn't really get emergency critical care in the emergency department, but we really want you there. And um, you're going to be working down in the ED, and we just want you to help us build that relationship. While that sounds appealing, I would just say caveat emptor, because you are, you know, uh, it would be, I would have been displacing a known entity. The administration on the emergency side was not allied to this goal, was not therefore going to be supportive for me, and I was going to be working entirely in that realm. So it wasn't a job that ultimately I wanted to be in the ICU. And it also put me in a relationship that was not necessarily hostile, but certainly not a positive position. And I think that that's important when you're looking at the private setting is that it is going to be a lot about those relationships and a lot about what you are able to add. And so that was ultimately one that I respectfully backed out of and said, you know, I'm really grateful that on the critical care side, you are ultimately so supportive and that means a lot to me. But this doesn't sound like a role that in the end I feel like I want to take on because I will be fundamentally under-supported or potentially negatively viewed on the other side. And I think that goodness of fit is not just your own, but also that the two departments have a desire to actually be improving their relationship and working together. And in the private setting, especially when you are in private groups who have a lot more autonomy without necessarily the hospital being able to step in and make certain demands, it is important that the two groups understand what you are and are very invested in creating a positive relationship and work environment, because otherwise, I do know someone who took that position and they ended up having to actually seek legal action to break the contract because it was so hostile. And that's just wow. a reality of the field that when you're in the private setting, you really need to have those harder conversations up front to make sure that things work out well for you. And then also... Oh. Yeah, so, we, we, I could go on at length, but I think that's yeah. about that. Uh, sounds like some uh, really important lessons that you've learned there. Do you find that's the same with uh, your academic uh, approach to working both in EM and critical care and maybe even uh, getting your research time as well? Um, how do you kind of split that up, Tiffany? Yeah, so um, um, I, I think that Zach brought up some some good points. I'll say that, you know, I did spend time working in private practice, and I think that there is a um, there's a really great piece of that that's important. Um, and, be, and if you have a place that you can alternate time between private and academic, it's, uh, I think that there's a lot of benefit to that. 
Um, so I think one of the things to sort of sum up what one of the things that I think Zach said that that I felt was um, true when I was looking for positions, even though it was many years beforehand, was that you're likely not going to get more than what you start off with. So if somebody tells you, look, we're going to let you work in the ED and, um, you know, we may develop critical care time later, I would call that a no-go. Um, when I interviewed at one very prestigious place, there was actually two very prestigious places that I interviewed with. So one of them said, Tiffany, can't you be an intensivist in the ED? Is, is that enough, or do you actually need to spend time in the intensive care unit? And my response was, um, no, sir, that's not enough. Um, I, I need to spend in critical care time as well as, you know, time in the emergency department. And part of that is maintaining your skills, and the other part of that is maintaining your credibility. Um, the other very prestigious place that I interviewed at uh, wanted me to work, uh, do my critical care time solely at the VA. And I love the VA. You know, don't don't get me wrong. In fact, I've missed um, one of the things that I, I have missed is not having time at the VA because um, I I have a very you know I have a connection with with the military for sure. Um, the problem with that was that there would be no trauma, and that was that was a principal part of my fellowship. And one of the things that I realized when I was doing the critical care fellowship, I never went in thinking that I was actually going to uh, be doing critical care solely. You know, I, I never went into it thinking that I was going to really be doing critical care. I just thought it was going to make me a better emergency physician. When I got into it, I realized that this is where I was meant to be, that I loved that, and I couldn't see that not being a part of my professional life moving forward. And if I took a position that did not include that, I stood the chance of not having it incorporated later. And then the longer period of time that you're actually out of that field, it becomes much harder to get into it. So um, basically I would say, you know, you're likely not going to get more than what you start with. So be clear about what your non-negotiables are and be very clear about what you can negotiate with what that would look like, what or how you would actually operationalize it. Um, and, and you have to be clear about that. The other piece is, you know, about pay, time, billing, those kind of things. So uh, like Zach, uh, I found initially that I was working half the holidays for both groups, which basically meant all the holidays. Um, people only see what – people only see the time that you're with them. So you have to make it clear – about the fact that where you're working and when you're working and how much you're working because they don't they think that when you're not there that means that you're not working they're forgetting that you're doing the same thing in another place so uh, it's important to keep that communication so people really do have that in front of them and even though they may know it logically they forget when they don't see your name on the schedule um, so when I originally started Oh, sorry, holidays. Um, what, what that evolved to is that I tell each group, you get, you're going to alternate each year for the holidays. So one year I'm going to do holidays with the ED, 
next year I'm going to do holidays with the ICU. And you get my, you know, undivided attention during that period of time. Uh, when it comes to time, my current time is, you know, uh, 0.5 FTE in each group. My primary appointment is with surgery right now. When I worked at UVA, my primary appointment was with emergency medicine, and my secondary was with surgery. Regarding pay, it depends on the institution, what they need, and how they how they sort it out. So when I was at UVA, uh, my entire salary was paid by the ED. And whatever I build in the ICU would go to the ED. That's how it was paid for. So I was, it was made very clear to me that I had to be able to um, provide sufficient billing to, um, to merit my time in the ICU. So I was, very, uh, I was very careful about what I was doing and how I was doing it and monitoring it. So when you're negotiating all of these kind of things, uh, one of the things I would suggest to anybody, regardless of your profession and what, regardless of what you're looking for, is there, there's a book that I read when I was coming back from the UK uh, by a guy, a guy by the name of James Kahn, and his last name is spelled C-A-A-N, and I can provide you a link or, or um, the book or whatever so that you can link to it from the one of the website. Dragon's Den, if I remember correctly. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so mm-hmm. that's he was from Dragon's Den, and that's basically the UK version of Shark Tank, and he owned a recruitment company, and he came out with a book about you know how to interview and what you need to think about, and more than what we would normally do. And when when you think about this from the perspective of you've been told where to go and you matched predominantly for the majority of your professional life. And now here's this opportunity where you're going to – you have the opportunity to choose, and you don't really know how, and you have never had to negotiate, and now you need to think about things from a different perspective. And when I originally um, heard about this book, I thought, you know, I've done plenty of interviewing. I've been interviewed plenty of times. I'm not sure this is going to help me. And then I was listening to him when he was interviewed on the BBC, and I was like, wow, this actually does sound interesting. And when I was in the airport, I picked it up and found it to be absolutely fantastic to help get a feel for things you should be thinking about. So I would suggest that book. Um, One of the things that Zach was talking about that I think is important is this opportunity to be a bridge between emergency medicine and critical care, emergency medicine and surgery, emergency medicine and trauma. Um, And there's a difference between a bridge and sort of being a tie between two divorced parents. And I think that's (laughs) sort of what Zach was getting to. Um, But leadership is more – it's less about – position and it's more about influence and what I mean by that is that you don't have to be the boss to have influence influence is really about whether or not people can trust you and whether or not they think that you have integrity and that you are willing to look at things from more than one point of view in an honest way that accounts for um, positive and negative on both sides and to help find common ground I think that's really important because a lot of times people think that leadership is about a position and it's really about influence. 
and I've had a lot of opportunity to influence in in my career where the direction that an organization took, the direction that my um, hospital leadership took was really about the influence that I was providing regarding the direction of our path rather than me having the position that made the ultimate determination. And with um, when you're thinking about being that bridge, the great part of that is that you understand both worlds and you can provide insights that others don't have. People tend to operate based on their own experience of the world and then they generalize it to everybody else. And you have the opportunity to walk in two different worlds, walk in somebody else's shoes, and um, and 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 help them to engage. I mean, your insights can help people from different um, from different specialties to collaborate, right? To integrate based on common ground or a common purpose. I mean, at the end of the day. We provide the best patient care when we do it together. And patients need us to provide more than a service line. They need us to provide a cross-continuum service. And the only way to do that is through collaboration, and that is not easy. It's, it's difficult. True. But it's something yeah. that we can attain, and we, uh, those of us who actually work in more than one world, have the ability to help facilitate that. That's a fantastic point. Uh, and I think that brings us uh, very nicely to uh, to a conclusion of this. I think, um, you know, uh, what I'm hearing from uh, speaking to very successful uh, career EM uh, intensivists uh, is that uh, we're a small group, but we're uh, good at what we do. We are good collaborators. We do our jobs well and provide excellent patient mm-hmm. care. We have to advocate for ourselves, certainly, for uh, achieving the positions that we need to be. Uh, there's a small but growing uh, number of mentors um, who have been, been there and done that that we can uh, uh, look to for guidance as well as become mentors in our own right as we progress through our careers. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, keep your minds open to us as emergency medicine, surgical, critical care intensivists um, because uh, we have – uh, shown that we uh, can uh, be good collaborators across the hospital departments, plus provide excellence in patient care. Uh, so I'll take this moment to thank our guests, uh, uh, Tiffany and Zach, um, for taking time out of their busy schedules to, to enlighten us a little bit about their paths to their current jobs and uh, what their thoughts are in getting there and moving forward in that. And uh, I want to thank you as the audience for listening to us for this East Career Cast focusing on emergency physicians who subspecialized in surgical critical care. Thank you very much. Thank you, Beth. Thank you.